going to do something a little bit different this morning um, than we normally do, um, both this morning and also uh, next week. And um, if for those of you who have been here for a while at Parkway, you might remember that uh, on the first Sunday of November, uh, we've taken a time aside uh, as a congregation to learn about the life of, uh, of a saint, of someone who made their mark on, on history because of their, um, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and um, their devotion to him. And, and this morning I wanted to um, continue that. I've taken a few years off, and the, the main reason actually is because um, the person I've wanted to do it on, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is somebody that I never felt adequate to present. Um, he's somebody who um, I can't profess to be an expert on, but he, his writings have ministered to me personally over the years, and his biographies have been inspirational. Uh, so I, I, I wanted to present him at a time when I felt ready, and honestly, I just still don't feel ready. Uh, but I don't want to wait until I'm 75 to do this, so I'm going to go ahead and, and do this. Um, it's difficult on a number of levels uh, to, to um, condense a, a man's life into um, a 35-minute message. Um, so I'm, I'm breaking it into two. I realized I, could, I just couldn't do it. Um, so you're going to get this in two parts. The first part is, is not as engaging or interesting as the second part, and yet I still think uh, it's, it, it has a message for us. Um, he is, if you don't know who he is, he was involved at some level in the conspiracy to try to uh, assassinate Hitler, which presents certain ethical, ethical dilemmas for a Christian should you ever at any point oppose um, your government or your leaders to the point of, of execution. Um, but we're not going to get into that this week. It's next week. So you have to come back for that, okay? Um, if you want to know more, even after these two Sundays, you're, gonna, um, you're going to just get a taste. And I can't recommend enough the newest biography uh, written by Eric Metaxas, just called Bonhoeffer. It's long, it's 500 pages, but it's worth every, uh, every ounce of, of time um, devoted to that. Uh, so with that said, um, I thought it was fitting to um, have that reading from uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, uh, led as lambs to the slaughter. Um, whether you know it or not, Christians were meant to follow in the path of their master who gave his life, and when called upon, we are to give our life, and even as we live, we're to give our life as living sacrifices. So um, I thought it was appropriate, Romans 8, and yet at the same time, recognizing that we are secure in the love of Christ regardless of what happens. Uh, and then um, one of the favorite verses of, of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Psalm 119, a great psalm on the Word of God, one of the longest psalm, um, right behind me, verse 71. This is a verse of meditation, and it fits his life, because at the end, he was one of those martyrs, um, just a lot earlier than the ones you saw in the video, where he said, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Uh, for those who might be new, normally, on, when during this section, we expound on a portion of scripture, because we're, we're, um, we're committed to um, teaching the Bible here. Um, this is, there's going to be scripture in this, but this is outside the ordinary, so um, just to let you know. Uh, for clarity's sake, I, I thought, I just want to tell you where I'm going to go this morning. Um, and uh, I, I want to just do a, just kind of a brief biography of his early life so you can kind of get a sense of where he comes from, who he is. Um, that's just the first part. And then I want to show you two waves, like tsunamis, that he stood against as a, as a pastor, as a theologian, as a Christian. Uh, those two waves, and then I just want to conclude with a, a couple ways in which what we learn today challenge or should challenge us as believers in the 21st century. 
And the, 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 the times in which we live are just uh, interesting that there's, he lived in a time of great change and chaos and um, kind of feels that way now too. So um, I pray that this will be helpful to you. So part one, like I said, just a brief, uh, brief biography of his early life. And um, I actually had to bring notes up here to, with me because I, I can't remember all this stuff. But um, he was born to a German fam- family in 1906 in Breslau, Pol- Pol- uh, Poland. Um, and then at the age of six, he moved to Berlin with his family. And uh, his, his, uh, his parents, both of them, come from a long line of, 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 um, of scholars and theologians and historians. His dad, Karl Bonhoeffer, and there's a lot of Karls in this family. Uh, Karl Bonhoeffer was a, was a um, professor of neurology and, and psychiatry and invested in his son uh, appreciation for a sound mind and good, solid thinking. His mother's name was Paula uh, Bonhoeffer, and uh, she was the daughter of, of the chaplain to the emperor. And her grandfather, another Karl, by the name of Karl August von Hayes, was regarded as the greatest uh, historian in the 1800s in Germany. So you can see that, um, again, Bonhoeffer's mom and dad, Karl and Paula, come from lines of, of, uh, of great education. Um, Bonhoeffer had seven siblings, so there are eight in the family. Four, four boys, four girls. Sounds like a perfect match, right? Uh, Bonhoeffer was a twin. Uh, he had a twin sister by the name of, of, of Sabine. And they grew up in a, um, what they called the Grun, uh, Grunwald district in Berlin, which was kind of an aristocratic area where there were lots of, uh, of scholars and artists, and a lot of the family friends were Jewish, which is going to figure into some of his sh- the shaping of who he is and his his sister, Sabine, his twin sister, um, ended up marrying a Christian man who was half Jewish. And by the time uh, things got dicey in Nazi Germany, they had to flee. So you can see that he was, from early on, um, he had good connections with, with, with Jewish people. Um, from descriptions that his family, his siblings gave about him, he's a, he's a man who, a boy who loved playing pranks. Uh, loved the mountains, loved the trees, loved birds, loved nature. Uh, he loved to play the piano. At one point, he thought about becoming a professional musician. Uh, he composed music and, um, I already said, played the piano, loved Mozart, uh, and uh, even, even sang songs. And so he was, he was a, obviously a very, very gifted person. But at the age of 14, he decided, now who does this at 14? He decided he was going to become a theologian. 14, you know? freshman in high school. I'm going to be a theologian, um, a Lutheran theologian. So he began to read and study theology. Uh, he was educated at, at um, a place called Tübingen University, where um, some of the most esteemed uh, German scholars of the time, and if you know anything about German history, you know that that time there were, there were, there were intellectual giants uh, in Germany, many of whom invented missiles and the atomic bomb and all those kinds of things. Uh, Germans. And the same was true in, in theology, and he sat under um, one of the great historians of, of the 20th century, a, a very liberal but very scholarly man by the name of Adolf von Harnack. If you ever look it up, you'll, you'll see how he was revered. Um, Dietrich, in his, uh, in his studies, respected the man deeply as he sat under him, but rarely did he agree with his theological conclusions. He was strongly influenced, because there's strong liberal theology in Germany in the early part of the 20th century. He was strongly influenced by another great thinker and arguably one of the greatest theologians in the 20th century, a man by the name of Karl Barth. 
uh, who, uh, with, a, with a small group of committed men, um, stood against uh, German theological liberalism. And uh, it was underneath uh, Bart's mentoring and friendship and um, influence that he developed his own convictions about um, the scripture and about truth. Um, where am I? Just to give you a sense of, of the, like the, uh, the context in which, I mean, because you can tell he's smart. By the time he was 21, he earned his doctorate. 21, you know, legal age of drinking here. He has a doctorate in theology, right? Um, by the age of 24, he was teaching systematic theology at the University of Berlin. So uh, amazingly gifted, smart guy. But the, the co- context in which he, he learned and studied was, as I mentioned, uh, in the context of scholarly liberalism. That is, they, they, they didn't believe that the Bible was, was God's word. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe that it, there was supernatural inspiration to the scripture. So basically, what they ended up doing in a very scholarly way was to say that this is nothing more than ordinary literature. And, and, and that, was, that, was the, um, that was the opinion of the day. And that's the context in which he grew, in which he learned. So that gives you just a little bit of a sense of, of early on some of the things that, I should say, you know, I have books on my shelves in my office um, that were written by liberal Germans. Because uh, they're, they're, they're so scholarly and so well done that though you may not agree with their conclusions, they're still cited to this day. I got out of college, and my mom says, what do you want for your birthday? I said, I want the entire um, collection of Kittles, New Testament dictionaries, because, and they're all written by liberal Germans. Uh, that, so that, that's how, um, that's how, 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 how much uh, scholarship was developed, liberal scholarship was developed um, in Germany in which Dietrich um, grew up. So there, there you go. He was gifted. He was smart. He was educated. He had achieved. That's... That's a little bit of who he is, where he comes from. So, with that said, let me just tell you about wave number one. This is just my way of thinking about it, and maybe it'll help you. The tsunami number one that he stood against, and I've already made reference to it. That Bonhoeffer essentially stood against the power of the flow of thought that the Bible was not inspired, it was not God's word, and that Christ and all of his miracles were myths. Um, Many of the German scholars tried to demythologize the Bible. And he was in the vast minority of those who stood firm on the centrality of Christ, the power of the gospel, and the reliability of scripture. It saturates his writings. You have a chance to read Life Together, you realize that he um, was all about meditation upon scripture. He, at one point in his life, he speaks of a conversion experience in which he, he came to a, a new understanding of, uh, of, of the scripture itself. Um, that will help him um, take on this wave of, of liberal thought. This is, uh, this is what he says in his own words. He says, I plunged into work in every, in, in very unchristian way, an ambition that many noticed in me made my life difficult. So he is full of this ambition, which he considered to be unchristian. Then something happened. Something that had, has changed and transformed life to the present day. For the first time... I discovered the Bible. I had often preached. So he'd already, already preached the Bible, studied the Bible, but he came to a, an, an 
a new discovery of the Bible. He said, I had seen a great deal of church and talked and preached about it, but I had not yet become a Christian. I know that at that time, I turned the doctrine of Jesus Christ into something of a personal advantage for myself. That is, if you can teach and preach the Bible, then it's personally advantageous. And he came to the realization that he didn't want to do that anymore. He discovered something in the scripture. And I think, I believe, I know for, for a fact that what he discovered was Christ. It says, I pray to God that that will never happen to me again. You can, you can hear from his own words the, 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 the discovery of the Bible as the word of God and as, as uh, his writings will, will, will show um, in the center of the Bible um, is Christ himself. It's interesting, he came to the United States in 1930 uh, to begin a teaching fellowship at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And at that time, there's a lot of liberal, liberalism here too. But he saw it as very different. He saw it as uh, detached from solid scholarship. And uh, he was appalled by what he saw in the United States. This is uh, what he wrote about his experience here. He says, there is no theology here. <laughs> they talk a blue streak without the slightest substantive foundation and with no evidence of any criteria. That is, he at least acknowledged that the liberal Germans had a reason for their liberalism. But here in the United States, says, there's just no foundation. The students, on the average, 25 to 30 years old, are completely clueless with respect to the dogmatics, what dogmatics, that is, theological dogmatics, is really about. They are unfair uh, with even the most basic, or excuse me, unfamiliar with even the most basic questions. They become intoxicated with liberal and humanistic phrases, laugh at the fundamentalists, and yet basically are not even up to their level. Fundamentalism in our language today is a negative term as we associate it with fanaticism. Back then, a fundamentalist Christian was simply someone who held to the essentials of the faith and would not bend. So it's used in a positive way. Way there. As I said, he meditated on Scripture. He taught Scripture in the, one of the colleges that he orchestrated. Sometimes they would spend an entire week on a single verse. And, and it was this commitment to, to, the, to the Scripture and the commitment to the Christ of the Scripture that allowed him to keep his feet firmly planted, especially when wave two broke. But he resisted this, this culture of the Bible isn't God's word. And even encouraged his people to avoid chasing after experience in regards to the Scripture and rather center uh, our attention on the word alone and leave its consequences uh, to its action. So you get a sense there of, of his commitment to Christ and to Scripture that stood against the flow, stood against the wave of, of liberalism. Um, we'll, there's a challenge in there, which we'll come back to in a moment. So that's wave no, number one. Like he, he stood against it because his feet were firmly planted in the truthfulness of Scripture, the veracity of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture, and the centrality of Christ in the Scripture. And I believe that's what enabled him, and by the way, if I didn't, I didn't say it up front, we're doing this not to glorify the man, but to glorify the God who worked in the man against evil. Wave number two crashes, and this is the, the rise of um, national socialism or, or Nazism or fascism and the indifference of the church, the Lutheran church at the time. Um, uh, 
it's interesting how God places people in the perfect time and place, right? Um, that Bonhoeffer would grow up where he did, having Jewish friends, that God would convince him that he needed to be a theologian, that he had influence through Karl Barth, that he came to an, an, an awakening of the scripture and the centrality of Christ at a time where there was a perfect storm brewing in Germany, right? And you guys remember your, maybe some of your early 20th century history when it, as it relates to that perfect storm, but on the one hand, you had um, Germany was in an economic tailspin um, due to the impossible load weight of the war reparations demanded by the Treaty of Versailles after World War I. The economic tailspin, you know what happens when the economics fall out, people get scared, it happened to us. And then on the other side of it, you had this, this, this deep hatred of communists that there was a belief in Germany after the First World War that the reason they lost the war was because of the communist Germans, that they had torpedoed or stabbed them in the back. So there was this there was an economic tailspin and deep hatred of, a, of an enemy. Uh, at one point, um, it was 1933, the same year that, that uh, uh, Hitler was installed as chancellor. Um, 1933, someone set fire to the Reichstag, uh, which is, is the parliamentary building. It's like burning down the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and they blamed it on the communists, which just incited all that much more fury and hatred of, and fear of these communists. Eric Metaxas, who's the, the author of the newest biography, believes, and there's others who believe this, that um, the ones who really set fire to the Reichstag or to the parliamentary building were the Nazis, to incite that sense of hatred. All right, so, perfect storm. Economic tailspin a feared enemy, communists, combined with a pathological, antisocial, crazy person who is smart and cunning. When, when those things come together, especially point one and two, that is the economic tailspin and a common enemy, people are willing to give power to anybody. You look for a savior in those times, right? And that's exactly what happened. Um, power was given. This is really generalized and, and, and uh, simplistic. But power, unilateral power, was given to Hitler, which he would use to set in motion his satanic um, purposes. That's a perfect storm that's, that's brewing. And just to be really clear, Hitler did not like Christianity. He, did, he had to manage it because there was a Lutheran church, but he hated it. He despised the cross and he despised redemption. Um, his master of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, had a diary in which he recorded conversations that he would have with Hitler. And this is the, one of the things that he said. He said, the Fuhrer spoke very derogatorily about the arrogance of the higher and lower clergy. Um, the insanity of the Christian doctrine of redemption really doesn't fit at all into our time. It is simply incomprehensible how any, anybody can consider the Christian doctrine of redemption as a guide for the difficult life of today. So there's no part of him that was Christian. There was no part of him committed to the cross. Deep down, he was pagan. Deep down, he was influenced, I think, uh, by the devil himself. And the thing about it is, again, right time, right place. Bon the Bonhoeffer family had access to people in, in some of the highest uh, levels they had access to admirals and generals, um, to scholars. So they knew kind of ahead of time and maybe what normal or common Germans may not have known about what was coming. They had the insight scoop 
They understood that this national socialism was um, full of an idolatry, that is the worship of the Fuhrer or the Savior, Hitler. He understood, they understood that this was racial hierarchy, that is, there was this belief in the master German race, and with it, this anti-Semitism. They saw it early on and um, did their absolute best to confront it. Um, At at the beginning, in the church itself, uh, one of the difficulties of of the time was that, um, I'd like to think of their three groups in the church in Germany at this time. One was called the German Christians. Notice, German Christians. They wanted to unify Nazi ideology with the church, um, diminishing the importance of the Old Testament because it's Jewish or even denying its um, veracity, and then stripping the New Testament of anything that was positively Jewish. That's the only way to to, uh, unify Nazi ideology in the church, which these German Christians tried to do. Very pro-Nazi. Then there's a huge group in the middle of people who are just indifferent, um, many of whom were supportive of, of, of Hitler, supportive of the installation of Hitler, and applauded him when he brought down France. Um, many of the churches and clergy were, were um, willing to adopt the Aryan paragraph, which basically was a paragraph that um, insisted the ex- on the exclusion of Jews from German institutions. So you have this church, this Lutheran church that, that re- uh, recites the creeds. They have the Bible, who are doing absolutely nothing about this rise of, of, of um, anti-Semitism and, and the, the Nazi party and so forth. And, um, and Bonhoeffer, along with other guys like uh, uh, Martin Niemöller, um, were some of the only ones, small bands, to, to oppose this. Uh, two days, did I just, I did. If I can get this back. There we go. Two days after Hitler was installed as Chancellor, Bonhoeffer got on the radio and he attacked him publicly. And the, the radio station cut it off in the middle. He wrote The Cost of Discipleship in this context. If you've never read The Cost of Discipleship, it is a provocative book that says, listen, when Christ calls you to follow him, he calls you to come and die. And in it, he explores the idea of cheap versus costly grace. He looks around and sees Christians who love and celebrate the benefits of grace, but it does absolutely nothing in their life um, in terms of love and sacrifice for the country or for the Jewish people or for um, just humanity in general. He said, it's cheap grace if, um, if it doesn't work in your life. Rather, he said, this costliness of grace, the realization that God himself came down and died and and gave himself for sinful people, that is costly, infinitely costly, and that should move one to act. It should move one to do something. It should move one to engage in what's happening rather than just remain passive. He he did his best to, 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 um, to awaken the church. Uh, he, he, he wrote personal letters. He met with pastors both in Germany and also in, in, in London to try and get the word out. This is what's happening. Um, and the church, of course, as I said, remained largely indifferent. Um, in one particular, let's see if I got the right slide up here, um, letter to a friend. Here we go. Uh, he wrote this. He says, 
And you can sense it's the spirit, like you're realizing the church needs to be engaged. He says the ecumenical movement um, is no longer the church, but a useless association in which fine speeches are made. Quote, if you do not believe, you will not be established, end quote. To believe, however, means to decide. That is, to really believe in Christ and the word and the gospel um, means you've got to decide. You can't be indifferent. And can there be any doubt as to the nature of that decision? Like, what, what should we be deciding because we believe? For Germany today, it is the confession, as it is the confession for the ecumenical movement. That is the, the, the witness of Christ. We must shake off our fear of the world. The cause of Christ is at stake, and we are to be found, um, and are we to be found sleeping? Christ is looking down on us and asking whether there is anyone left who confesses faith in him. Faith must decide. Faith must work. Faith, true faith in costly grace, uh, moves a person to action. When it came to the Jewish question, what should the church do? He wrote an essay and delivered an essay on how the church should relate to the state. And for a culture in which we liked, we may not like, but that celebrates, generally speaking, separation of church and state, uh, this is what he wrote how the church should act towards the state if necessary. You might not agree with all these. He wrote and delivered, and ministers got up in the middle, and some of them left. One, the church must question the legitimacy of state's actions. Is it acting morally? Is it acting in the best interest of its people? Is it acting in the, in the direction of righteousness and justice? Or is it oppressing the people? So the state must question. I agree with that. Two, takes another big leap. He says, the church bears an unconditional obligation to help victims, even if they aren't Christian. It bears an unconditional obligation if... If there's a people being oppressed, then the church bears the unconditional obligation to care for them, a.k.a. in his time and context, the Jewish people. And the third one, which probably most in here would not agree with, and here I quote Metaxas, um, at some point, the church must take action against the state to stop it from perpetrating evil. And it's that last point that will lead to some of the ethical uh, quandaries of his joining in the conspiracy. Now, as I said, many would not agree with the last statement. I don't know if things got dark enough, maybe it might change somebody's mind. But first two, in other words, he's saying the church has to engage. It can't be silent. It can't sit passively by. It can't be indifferent. Eventually, Bonhoeffer and a, a group of dissenting pastors and theologians um, uh, wrote and declared what is called the Barman Declaration, um, which was a formal statement that said, this is where we stand. And here are two excerpts of it, and this was actually written by Earl Barth, which Bonhoeffer agreed with. He said, this is the, the statement that they're making to everybody. 
In opposition to attempts to establish the unity of the German evangelical church by means of false doctrine, by use of force and insincere practices, the confessional synod insists that the unity of the evangelical churches in Germany can come only from the word of God. In faith through the Holy Spirit, this alone is the church renewed. And later on down the declaration, in view of the errors of the German Christians, those are trying to bring the two together, Nazi ideology and the German church, of the present Reich church government, which are devastating the church and also therefore breaking up the unity of the German evangelical church, and it gives a, a bunch of uh, denunciations. And they, this is who we are, and basically as a result, this what they call the Confessing Church was formed, which is a, a group of churches that says, we're not, we ain't going down this highway, right? Um, we are not going to be part of this. In addition to, back up here, in addition to his writing and his speaking and his um, letter writing and the um, affirmations, this declaration, um, he, 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 he was part of a, an illegal college for pastors where he taught um, in Pomerania. As I said, illegal, and it, was, it wasn't a, a college that's normal. It's very communal. And in that communal college, they would, they would have times of, it was very regimented, times of silence, times of meditation, times of prayer, times of singing. And he would, he would, um, he would invest his life in pastors who would resist the Nazis. And by the time the war ended, 80 of 150 of those pastors would be killed. So you see, he's, he, he, in terms of these two waves, here's this guy um, in his 20s and 30s, is resisting this avalanche of liberalism and he's resisting this avalanche of communism, or excuse me, um, Nazism, standing firm and standing against it. So there you have two waves and it gives you just a sense of, of him. Now let me just, two challenges for us. What does this say to us? And, and, and one of these should be obvious. You, you already saw it on the screen behind me, right? Um, and that is the responsibility of every Christian and every Christian church to stand firm in the word of Christ against all waves all waves like him we face some rather powerful currents in our time of people wanting us to either deny the authority and supremacy of Scripture and Christ or to change what we've believed for thousands of years about the Scripture or about the supremacy and authority of Christ. That is, you and I, we live in a time where we worship individual autonomy and tolerance of everything but truth. It seems to me that Dietrich's example uh, is a good one for us today. Do you believe? And if you believe, have you decided that this is where I stand? I stand on the supremacy of Jesus Christ, Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, and I stand on the authority of this book. That is something that every Christian needs to decide now. 
The currents are going to get swifter and stronger, and you know it. Isn't this what Paul told us to do? As a church, as believers, followers of Christ, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for faith of the gospel. Stand firm. Not compatibly, not antagonistically, but to stand firm for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his word, and for the sake of humanity. Stand firm. I hope you've resolved in your own heart that that's where you are. Um, to stand firm in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And to hear Bonhoeffer say to us, you know, the words that he said to the Germans, we must shake off a fear of this world. The cause of Christ is at stake, and we are, and are we to be found sleeping. And then the second challenge um, is not just to stand, but to engage. How many Christians are unengaged? More concerned about building up their own personal kingdom than they are engaged in the world with the gospel. And by engaged, I mean engage the world from and with the full application of the gospel. Engage the world from and with the full application of of the gospel from because our source of strength never comes from us does it Um, the the motivation and drive to engage in issues related to social justice should not just arise from us or to be part of a cause it certainly wasn't that for Bonhoeffer Um, one of his confidants a, a bishop in London with whom he conferred many times, wrote this about him in his memoir. And it, 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 it struck me that the center of his being was, was not to be a, a, a person of cause, but rather um, a person who, who was deeply connected to the source of all of this work, and that is Christ. He said, this is uh, uh, Bishop Bell. He said, uh, it, it was not enough for Bonhoeffer to seek justice, truth, honesty, and goodness for their own sake and, um, um, and patiently to suffer for them. No, according to Bonhoeffer, We have to do so in loyal obedience to him who is the source and spring of all goodness, justice, truth. Um, And on whom, should be an on there, he felt absolutely dependent. That is the, the, the source of his engagement was his relationship with Christ as the source and spring of all goodness. Strength is never going to come from you to stand or to engage in the world but I also said there, with the full application of the gospel. And, and that's not something we do really well. What do I mean by that? Is that he understood that the gospel itself speaks to the issues of race. You ask a person today, okay, so why was Hitler bad? And they'll say, well, because he killed people and he killed Jews. It's like, well, okay, so why is that bad? And if, you know, they didn't slap you in the face... Um, they'd say, well, because, because he, like I said, he killed people. I said, well, we in the United States, we kill people. We call them bad all the time, right? So, so why is it wrong to kill people? Well, because it's, um, it's mean. It's, it's, it's prideful to believe that you're a better person than somebody else's inferior. It's like, well, why is that wrong? 
I mean, if we live in a world where Darwin insists that the, 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 the survival of the fittest is why we continue on, then it stands to reason that maybe the weaker should die. So what's wrong with that? And at the end of the day, there's no real substantive question or answer, no moral foundation whatsoever to those questions. It just keeps going, so why, so why, so why? For the Christian, we have two reasons to stand against um, such things. One, of course, is the doctrines of creation, the belief that every human being is created in the image of God and therefore infinitely valuable, so there is no such thing as someone who's more inferior to another. But, but for Bonhoeffer in particular, it was more about the gospel. He had this experience where, you know, he's German Lutheran, where he went to, 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 to Rome, and he went into St. Peter's Basilica, and he experienced a mass, and he wasn't Catholic and listened to a bell choir or boys choir. He said it was an amazing sight because what he saw was he saw people of all ethnicities gathering in one place to worship Christ. And while he didn't agree with Catholic theology, he saw an image of what the church should be, and that is it's one church composed of many types of people. And that had an impact on him, and he started to study on what is the church? Well, the church is the body of Christ, composed of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And as we come into Christ, you know what happens? The distinctions between Germans and Jews and Aryans and non-Aryans, they no longer exist because there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, Aryan or non-Aryan, because all of us are one in Christ. That is the gospel. And it is absolutely in, in dire contradiction to the belief in a master race. He saw the gospel implications, and why the Nazis were fundamentally immoral. And that's, that's what you call taking the fullness of the gospel and thinking through, you know, how does, how does the gospel relate to, to racial conflict? It does. How does it relate to abortion? How does it relate to marriage and divorce? How does it relate to economics? How does it relate and speak to business practice? And that, that, brothers and sisters, is, is, is how we engage in the world, is to engage with our roots deeply into the fountain of who Christ is. And then um, figuring out, based upon how God's gifted you and wired you and the desires and shaping, like God put Bonhoeffer in the right place at the right time, he's put you in the right place at the right time, how has he called you to engage the world with uh, the message of Christ and all of its implications? Part one, I, I hope and I pray that we as a church um, and you as individual Christians will be able to answer the question, how am I engaged? Don't just stand there. We need to stand there. Stand strong, stand firm in the gospel of Christ. But how is it that we are engaging? How is it that we are not being indifferent or passive, especially in the time in which we live? where the world needs the light of the gospel and people committed to the gospel, people committed to bringing the implications of the gospel to bear upon the life here in the United States. Um, more next week. Father, we thank you for uh, the example of a brother who lived, died, gave his life um, for the sake of your son, for the sake of scripture, for the sake of humanity, for the sake of the gospel itself. I pray that you would challenge us in our hearts, Lord, um, to be people who are um, equally committed to Christ, equally committed to action, um, and living out our Christian faith.
Christ's name. Amen.